So convenient a thing is it to be a rational creature, since it enables us to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do as we embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 176 of Embrace the Void, where we put the dis in disconfirmation bias. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking epistemic crisis. Boy, I don't know. So, let's make with the thinking about thinking. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Dr. Amitabha Palmer a philosophy professor at Ohio Northern University. Ami, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. You were thrown to the void by friend of the show, Marcus, uh, who I've had on previously to talk about the many uh, failures of liberalism. Um, and I really <laughs> appreciate you coming on because um, I think you and I have a lot of overlapping interests. and I'm excited to hear about your work. Yeah, I was excited to come on the show because when you sent me some of the articles you had written, I didn't realize that it was you who had written Monster Island, which um, I think I, I wrote you that when I encountered that article, I was just finishing my dissertation and I posted it on my Facebook page. I said, if I could summarize all the research I've done on fake news and echo chambers in the last six years, this article would summarize everything I've learned. That's it's both comforting to hear and also depressing to hear my reputation precedes me in that particular kind of way. Um, <laughs> it is very weird, the fruit that has been born from that particularly cursed tree. So I'm glad that you felt sympathetic to it. And I'm curious to hear actually a little bit about um, what you saw in there that was similar to what you were doing in your dissertation. Why don't we start, though? Do you want to let folks know just a little bit about your background and your primary research interests? And then we can talk about your dissertation a bit. Sure. Yeah. Background. Actually, I came to philosophy like some other people I've talked to. It's weird um, where I took a philosophy class in undergrad by accident. Mm -hmm. I thought it was psychology and <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was sitting in the class and I'm like, holy crap, I can actually take this for credit for, for school. This is awesome. This is what I think about all the time anyway. So I was just like, yeah, I was just fascinated and like, I just thought like, mm -hmm. this is going to be the easiest way for me to get to undergrad, <laughs> to just study the stuff that, that I'm already thinking about anyway. 
that's how they suck you in. It's deceptively easy when you're just getting to think about the things and have fun with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people I got, you know, I was really interested in existentialism. And I remember the free will and determinism problem kept me up. Mm -hmm. It literally kept me up nights. And I was just really worried. Like, do what? Do I don't have free will? Like, what, what the heck? Um, and it's then still I, the most interesting problem to me, even though I, I, I still managed to go to sleep while dealing with it. Yeah, I just kind of like allowed myself to not care because otherwise it drives me insane. Okay. Did you end up not caring by believing there is free will or not caring by believing there isn't free will? I am in what's the what's the Kant's word? Is Compatibilism? It, um, oh. No, um, not aporia. Is ap aporia? Uh, where I, I think like both both arguments are equally compelling, and so I'm in, in this like state of suspension, and I'm okay. Oh, with that. Uh, ataraxia, I think. Ataraxia, right? yeah. The, the ancient term for it, right? The suspension right. of judgments. Yeah, I can respect that equilibrium. I get that. That's fair. So that's interesting. How did you? Is there a line from that to your work doing the stuff around things like conspiracy theories and misinformation online? Um, actually, there is no line. Um, what happened was I, I finished undergrad and then I was a professional dancer and martial artist for 10 years. And I traveled all over the world. Um, I lived in Japan for five years, trained with some famous people there, had a dance school there as well. All right. I have to know what, what styles of dance and what styles of martial arts. Yeah. So I, uh, I was primarily salsa and other okay. Latin uh, nightclub dances. Uh huh. And then I was doing, you know, um, mixed martial arts. You know, I was like to say before mm -hmm. it was cool. You know, it was like 2000, 2001. And also, you know, heavily on the grappling side. So I was into like submission wrestling because I'd wrestled in high school. And mm -hmm. and then the last, I think, seven, eight years, I've been doing a lot of judo. And I coached the university uh, judo club while cool. we were allowed to practice. Right. So... At some point in undergrad, I think it was my second philosophy class, I said to myself, this is what I want to do. Like, I found it. Like, I want to be a philosophy professor. But then, you know, my original plan was just to go to Japan for two years, but mm -hmm. end up spending 10 years traveling the world and dancing and doing martial arts. And then at some point I was on tour in Europe, I was sitting in a hotel room and I mm -hmm. realized that if I didn't act on that dream to become a philosophy professor, I was in my early thirties at that point, like then, like it was just, was not going to happen because my brain had atrophied because I hadn't, wasn't doing anything academic. Mm -hmm. And, oh, and that, that was right around when podcasts started and I got into skeptics guide to the universe and skeptoid. Mm -hmm. I was like, these guys are freaking smart. I want to be smart like them. And, um, so I got, I got really into the, the skeptical movement like when it was, for starting out in its modern incarnation. And these, they were my academic heroes. And that's kind of like what got me interested in conspiracy theories and science denialism, you know, from, from an intellectual point of view and just studying it. So you were, you were in Japan in a hotel room. How do you, do you go from Japan in a hotel room to listening to skeptics podcast to then, I guess, applying for grad schools and just sort of. Yeah. So actually, so at it? that point I was on tour in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, I was in a hotel in Berlin and yeah, so we were on a tour, we were, we were, you know, 
drive from city to city on a tour bus. And I was on the bus. I just listened to uh, Skeptic's Guide podcast episodes and to Skeptoid podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. I just like, you know, this is, I think this is like 2000. Oh, this would have been 2008, I think. Mm-hmm. And I just got really into it. And then I was like, okay, I got to go back to school. Uh, so 2010, I, you know, 2010 was when I went back to school. And what I couldn't understand, what I couldn't figure out, so I did a master's and then I did the PhD, is until about, until I had finished the coursework in my um, PhD, I couldn't figure out how to connect my love of uh, skeptical issues and interest in science denialism and conspiracism to philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time, no one was really talking about that stuff. So I wrote a paper in 2015, you know, before the term fake news was invented, saying that political, like a liberal democratic society is not possible if we mm. disagree on the empirical facts. You can have this, you can have disagreement on the normative facts, and you can find ways to work around that. But if you have disagreement, if you have normative disagreement and empirical disagreement, Mm-hmm. then how do you even talk to each other? Right. So you're, you're, you're looking at the beginnings of the epistemic crisis there that like, it seems is, is really blossoming at that particular time. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. It's, it's, I find it valuable because I also came via weird sort of pathways to end up in my current position of, of educator and, I do think there is value in going out from the university, doing things in the world for a while, and then coming back to the university. And I wish there was more pathways for individuals to functionally do that. I feel like because the system is is so hyper competitive in terms of, you know, you need to have gone to this school and have this many publications and such that it's very difficult for folks who are trying to, you know, incorporate life experiences and stuff into, you know, coming back around and doing philosophy a lot of the time. Did you feel like you were supported in doing that? Or did you feel like that was kind of a hindrance for you as you were getting back into these areas? Oh, it was a massive hindrance. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to go to grad school. I had no idea like how difficult it was to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what the application process was like, I didn't, I didn't have any letter writers. Like it had been 10 years since I'd been in a classroom. Um, and you know, I wasn't like a, I wasn't a stellar undergrad, you know, I was like a slightly above B student. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, totally naive about what was involved. Um, so I, I actually originally started out. Oh, I mean, the, the full story is I, I was living in, in my, my base was, was Las Vegas. Um, mm-hmm. And so I applied for, they had a master's in ethics and public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, this was right in the heart of the economic crisis. And so I, I, I talked to the director and he let me into the program as a general graduate student. So not into the program. He said, and maybe, you know, if you do well in the first semester, then we can make you an official member of the program. It's like, cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so th- it, was, it was around July and the program was starting in August and the university cut the program because universities were cutting tons of programs back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have the funding. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I, was, I already like, committed in my heart to pursuing the philosophy path. I was like, so I just looked, okay, what's the closest university to me that has philosophy? And it was ASU. 
So um, I went, you know, I wasn't accepted into the program, obviously, because the deadline had, had passed, but I was, um, I could get in as a general grad student. You know, if you're a general mm-hmm. grad student, you can take up to three courses that will count towards credit, towards an eventual uh, graduate degree, but you can't take more mm-hmm. than that. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take, I'm going to take three classes. And then that way I can, because at that point I knew that I needed to have letter writers because I didn't have letter writers. Um, mm-hmm. so, and then I can have letter writers. So I'll, and then, um, and then I'll just apply a, again. So that's what I did. I, and I got into um, a couple other masters. I was accepted in a, a few other masters programs. Ended up going to University of Houston. Um, mm-hmm. And when I graduated, I said, I, I'm never doing that again. Like it was, it was mm-hmm. so hard. I mean, going from 10 years of no academic engagement and using your brain that way mm-hmm. to graduate level philosophy classes um, was ridiculously diff- difficult. And the only, I think the only reason I got through it is because I couldn't think of myself doing anything else with my life at that point. Mm. So I was, I was just willing, I was willing to suffer. I didn't, I didn't care what it took. Like if it was, if it killed me fine, but I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna quit. This is the thing I was gonna do. Uh, but unless, unless you have that level of motivation as a like, non-traditional student, you're not going to survive. Yeah, I do think that is unfortunately the case. And I, I struggle with how to talk about that in a way that isn't. It's so easy to do the doom and gloom thing when it comes to people wanting, you know, having interest in doing academic philosophy. And I really do struggle because I don't want to just shut them down entirely. But... I do want people to really understand how much of a nightmare it is, even for people who have been privileged epistemically in all of their ways, you know, the entire path. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's valuable hearing that for folks and, and you sharing that. So why don't we talk a little bit about your work then? So what is your, tell me a little bit about your dissertation and how you feel like it connected to the Monster Island stuff, which um, for folks who are not familiar, I did a uh, an article about this in the Skeptic UK mag. Um, I was also on Cog Dissonance talking about this and a few other shows, uh, serious inquiries and such. So um, what, is, what, what did you write about in your dissertation? What was your sort of central diagnosis? So my dissertation comes out of that 2015 paper. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of begin with two basic intuitions that we have. <clears throat> the first is that in a politically liberal society, a law is only a coercive law is only legitimate insofar as the people subject to it um, have their reasons and beliefs represented in that law in some way. Um, otherwise, the law is indistinguishable from an authoritarian law. Um, the other intuition that we have is that experts know more than us. <laughs> <laughs> especially okay. uh, and and where there is a consensus of experts we should follow that consensus uh, on empirical matters so I'm, I'm really careful to um set out that my dissertation is purely about empirical matters okay not normative disagreement so okay. so the so what happens when those two um kind of into intuitive commitments come into conflict right so if we think, so on the one side, like if we think that laws are only politically legitimate insofar as they re- represent the values and beliefs of the people subject to them, 
then if people believe that the earth is flat, then the laws have to, a policy has to accommodate the belief that the earth is flat, right? But clearly that's, that's crazy. Um, on the other, on the other side of it, if we say, no, we're just gonna go with the experts, then, um, what, what role is the public playing in generating laws and policy? Why are we even, why do we even care what the public thinks in the first place? So that's really like how I set it out. And then that's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then what I do is in the first, so when I was writing that, nobody had nobody in that literature is talking about empirical disagreement. Everyone just assumes that empirical disagreement is not a problem. And it, like, so far as like one of the authors says, yeah, you know, if, if you want to know about what to do, just just Google it, right? If you want to know an empirical fact, just Google it, right? Which is hilarious now, right? Um, sure. So a truth understanding of the way that empirical disagreement works. Yeah. So what? Yeah. So what I did in my first chapter is I look at, so I look at the, the existing literature, looks at how to reconcile normative disagreement in in a politically liberal society. So I said, well, can we just like take this model for reconciling normative disagreement and apply it to epistemic disagreement? Oh, sorry, to uh, empirical disagreement. Mm -hmm. And then, so in the first chapter, I show, I show, no, this model doesn't work. It's going to give us the wrong, like bad outcomes. Second chapter, I do that to another um, prominent model. Uh, I say, no, this isn't going to work either. And then the third chapter, through a case study of, I use a vaccine hesitancy as a model um, mm -hmm. to show how we should address um, deep empirical disagreement that conflicts mm -hmm. with a consensus of relevant experts. Um, and so that's kind of the, the overview of my dissertation. And, and can you preview a little bit? I, I imagine it's probably fairly technical, but I'm curious, what, what is the, the model that you end on that you feel like is the, the best for approaching things like um, vaccine hesitancy and, and the, the empirical conflicts around that? Yeah, so I, on the normative side, I say that the state has a has a duty to protect the, the rights, sorry, the, um, the health and welfare of children. Mm -hmm. um, and that duty is greater than the right of parents to determine the, whether children get vaccinated or not based on improbable empirical beliefs. So, mm -hmm. and also I, I draw this line between religious exemptions and what are called non-medical exemptions or otherwise referred to mm -hmm. as philosophical exemptions, um, which are really just empirical exemptions, right? Uh, people who claim philosophical exemptions, the research shows what they really believe is that vaccines are more dangerous than the diseases that they prevent. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas like with religious exemptions, which I, I consider to be like normative, uh, in the normative domain, um, the uh, I think like the, the courts appropriately I think use sincerity as a standard, but I don't think so. The the disanalogy with the empirical beliefs is that sincerity isn't a, isn't the appropriate standard for evaluating empirical claims, right? If I really 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 believe that the Earth is flat, like that's the wrong standard for um, a political epistemology to determine whether we should include 
that consideration in developing policy. That's interesting. I'm a little hesitant initially when you describe it that way to think about, well, do I really agree that all of the religious exemption claims are normative, right? It seems to me that some of them could be normative, but it seems to me that a lot of them could could be reasonably described as uh, empirical in the sense that they believe that they are making claims about the nature of souls and such and their relation to blood transfusions or their nature of, you know, relation to, um, you know, the purity of the body is important in relation to the spirit. Um, they, you know, they are metaphysical claims, but they still yeah. seem to me that they are not necessarily normative in the sense that I would consider to be important if I was making the kind of distinction that I, I, I get, I get where you're going with it in terms of like, you know, we, we can allow for just sincerity to be a reasonable guide when we're, when we're, people are making personal moral judgments, but we shouldn't use that for things that are claims about facts about reality, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I, I deliberately, um, kind of, uh, snuck that through. Um, mm -hmm. so what, what, yeah, so you're, you're right. And I, and I do address this, you know, many, uh, religious reasons are not purely normative. They're, they're metaphysical. So they're not empirical or normative. So all I, all I really want to claim is I'm, I'm not going to say anything about what we should do with, uh, metaphysical, claims, but I'm just going to talk specifically about empirical claims, right? Fair Somebody else can, can handle the problem of, of metaphysical claims. I fully um, respect you on the scope of the paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but I'm just going to say, like, yeah, on empirical matters, where there is a consensus of relevant experts mm -hmm. and somebody disagrees, the sincerity of that empirical belief does not privilege it in some way where it has to take, be taken into account in policy. So do you go then all the way to a place of like, if a person's arguing because they, you know, read an Andrew Wakefield paper instead of because Jesus, then their children should still get vaccinated despite their sincere beliefs? Yeah, so I, um, yeah, my, my paper doesn't fully go into this, but um, yeah, on my view, uh, religious exemptions um, should be given more uh, weight than empirically based exemptions. Now, I, th I really believe that there are cases when we can override religious exemptions, mm -hmm. um, specifically when um, the herd immunity rate, so wh when the um, immunization rate falls significantly below mm -hmm. what's required for herd immunity, then the state's duty to protect the health and welfare of children kicks in. Right. So this was this was actually mm -hmm. um, the courts actually recognized this. So in I think it was 1991 in Philadelphia, uh, there was this church uh, that didn't that was like an anti-vax church. Um, and what happened was. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was like 10 or 12 children died of measles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 400 children got infected and then the infection was spreading to the you know, the greater community. So it wasn't just restricted to the church. And the court um, mandated that the children be vaccinated against the parents' wishes. I think mm -hmm. this is just a recognition of the, with the principle, which I'm saying, which is that the state has this duty to protect the health and welfare of children. Um, and that's and greater. Than, uh -huh. Yeah. No, I'm just curious. And, and then is the bar then lower even still for non-religious sort of 
justifications? Like, do you set a different sort of? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we, we get rid of we get rid of the non-religious justifications first. If so, like, so let's suppose we're below herd immunity, right? The first people that we're going to take their exemption away from is the people that are that have this false empirical belief about the the relative harm of vaccines. Those people get their exemption taken away first, and then, and if that brings us back to uh, herd immunity, then we don't touch their religious exemptions, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're still below what we need for herd immunity, and there's community transmission and kids are dying, the state has has the right and in fact the duty mm-hmm. to um, to have those children vaccinated. The, yeah, the I, I, I guess there's maybe there's some worry maybe that they would all then just claim religious exemption. But I I get the impression that their government has some sort of system of in its mind consistently distinguishing between sincere appeals to religious exemption versus uh, people who suddenly are, are appealing to religious exemption because they know that it will be treated differently than non-religious yeah. exemption. Yeah, that's 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 a legitimate worry, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting stuff. So something else that you talked about in some of the work that, that you sent me about the epistemic crisis was um, the way that empirical expertise is a big sort of center to the problem. And there's been, of course, lots of coverage about the quote unquote kind of death of expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, can you talk first a little bit? You mentioned that a, a key feature is the heuristics that we as human beings use for identifying expertise, which is, I think is an important sort of psychological piece of all of this. What is the the kind of heuristics that human beings tend to make use of that they evolved and that appear to be somewhat adaptive, at least in some situations? Yeah, I think let me first begin with the idea of epistemic inter- interdependence because okay. um, the problem of experts only really um, makes sense when you understand epi- epistemic interdependence. So very simply, this is a fa- just a, this is a fancy way of saying that um, no one person can acquire through trial and error all the information that they need for the practical decisions that they need to make in their life. Right. So if I want to know whether I should get vaccinated or not, and I want to know whether the vaccine's safe, there's no way that I can like create my own lab and then become an expert on. Uh, vaccines and immunology, and then also like learn about, you know, like what I need to get fixed in my car and, you mm-hmm. know, all, all these kind of like, there's no way you, you, you cannot get a PhD in everything. Right. And, and so we are forced, in fact, it's rational to defer to other people that know more about something than you do. And you, and importantly, you don't even need to understand their reasons for what they believe. You just need some way of identifying that they know more than you. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Uh, and this, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this, and this, and this goes back all the way to Plato, right? You know, Plato says like, if you want to get the, your, your horse shoed, do you, you know, who do you go to? Do you go to the banker or do you go to the guy who's shoes or the blacksmith who's, who, uh, shoes horses all day? You go to the horseshoer. Right. Um, so we recognize that there are people that know more than us in certain domains. And it's just it's rational to outsource the epistemic labor to those people and just and just say, OK, what do you think I should do? And just believe what they believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. OK, so that that's the first piece of the puzzle. 
No, everything goes either right or wrong from there. The pain on really the question is how how do you decide who to whom to defer? If you do that well, then you're good. If you do that poorly, you're going to end up in in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So there are there are two main mechanisms, and this comes from uh, Boyd and Richardson from the 80s. These are mathematical models from um, cultural anthropology and evolutionary anthropology uh, to look how like, how culture is transmitted. Um, so the first piece is the prestige bias, or which is a, a variation of the success bias, and all that is is that we will defer to people that we consider to be prestigious. Now, it's critical that prestige is culturally local. So, you know, I don't defer to people outside of my culture um, or my my community because prestige is something that, um, yeah, is, is culturally local. Mm-hmm. Now, the, um, and maybe actually in our contemporary society, it's better to think about this in terms of so- social networks, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than communities, because in communities group. now are, are are geographically diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the, the critical point is that I look for people who have high status or prestige that I I believe to have prestige in my community, and I defer to them. This explains why people defer to celebrities on on health issues. Yeah. Right. Within their particular social network, those are, those are prestigious people. And so they defer to them. Yeah, this is funny because, you know, when I teach logical fallacies, right, I'll talk about appeal to authority as being kind of the fallacious version of appeal to expertise. Yes. Right? And that like much of the work of what you have to do as a, as a knowledge seeking person is to distinguish between genuine appeals to expertise versus uh, these problematic appeals to authority, right? But part of the problem is, as you're sort of pointing out, in terms of everyday practical psychology, our, our attempts to achieve understanding via expertise relies on appeals to authority, right? We do, and we, we don't ha- we don't have time to suss out who is the expert. We have to rely on people who are treated as authorities on particular subjects and hope that they are being credentialed via a system that is not horribly bankrupt. Exactly. Yeah. So this is going to come out as we go as we talk about this more, and it's something I'm starting to think about a lot more is that we need to think of the the epistemic crisis on two levels. The first level is how groups converge on beliefs. And the second level is how individuals converge on beliefs, because these are not necessarily the same. And because they're not the same, the methods of intervention will not be the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to talk about this because I think you highlighted as being connected to issues around social sorting and polarization, which is something that, you know, at the same moment, everyone has simultaneously noticed that we're in a massive epistemic crisis and there's a bunch of like really serious polarization that is exacerbating that problem. How do you see sort of the role of polarization and taking what is a functional mechanism and turning it into like a deeply dysfunctional mechanism? Yeah. So first, I just want to clarify uh, mm-hmm. some terms here. So polarization can refer to political polarization or social mm-hmm. polarization. So social polarization is 
it's a, it's a measure of the affective distance between groups, mm-hmm. right? So if I really dislike another social group, that's high social polarization. Political polarization, on the other hand, is the distance between the policies that various groups advocate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now both of these things are happening right now. Yeah, right? it seems like yeah, someone like Ezra Klein, I think, is arguing that these sorts of things are stacking up on each other that like we're getting a lot of kinds of polarization aligned in, in a single sort of identity column in this way. Yeah. That, that, that comes originally, I think from Juliana Mason's book. Mm -hmm. Um, So why does social sorting and polarization matter? Well, because the prestige bias remember is culturally local or like local within, um, a social network. So that means it's harder and harder for somebody on the right to defer to a university public scientist on an issue because they are more and more seen as, as the outgroup. And so they have low status. Mm-hmm. And so this is what's, this is what's driving the uh, misallocation of trust to various people. Yeah, and I want to talk about the asymmetry there, or what what I perceive as an asymmetry. So I'm curious in your looking at this, you mentioned as an your example, right? People on the right and uh, academics. I think there's a clear history of the exacerbating of the animosity of the kind of you know enforcing an in group resistance to that particular source of information. So I'm I'm curious. Let me ask you this. I will I will state very openly right my perspective is a is a progressive liberal one and that colors probably my view of the epistemic crisis and how it has come about and and how I think we are spiraling so from my perspective it feels to me that there is there's been a very specific politically motivated process on the right going back to civil rights era going back to the southern strategy stuff like that to Mm -hmm. create this epistemically isolated group that is anti-elitist anti-academic anti-experts and that continues for a generation and leads to what seems to me a group that is highly resistant to outside information and uh, as a result, a hotbed of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you feel like that is sort of the leader, the leading cause and that we're all kind of being dragged along by that particular heart of the epistemic crisis? Or do you feel like there are other factors in play that are sort of equally relevant that you'd want to include? No, I think that's right. Um, and now, I, I don't know if you've read the book. Um, if anyone is interested in this topic, you should read it. Uh, it's called uh, Network Propaganda. Um, and it's basically a deep dive into all the data and social networks that are online and, and how information during the 2016 um, election cycle you know, went from a single tweet to being a viral story. Um, mm-hmm. And they basically, you know, they visualize they put in a visual format, the different media networks. And so this, it's true. The, the right, the white right wing populist uh, media network is a propaganda network. Mm-hmm. And so let me just, yeah, jump into something that, that, that we're, we can talk about more. Um, so 
there's a, there's a you know some people in this literature will say oh you know the right wing mind is especially prone to this or the religious mind is especially prone to this or mm-hmm. you know it's a kind of like there's there's something about the people that's causing them to believe in all this crap right mm. i think that, that that that's a mistake i think you know maybe there are some minor cognitive differences but those minor cognitive differences whatever they are don't explain the massive effects that we're seeing okay mm-hmm. i think the difference is that the right wing populist uh, media uh, ecosystem is isolated mm-hmm. and there's just way more um, misinformation and disinformation going through that network than there is in the non right wing propaganda network. So, but if people on the left had a similar looking media network, mm-hmm. the outcome would be the same. There's nothing special about people on the left. They're just, we're lucky that, well, sorry, I shouldn't say it's luck. Cause let me add to that. Um, we, okay, we're fortunate. Okay, you can blame everything on luck on this show. That's that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a big point for you if you do that. Yeah. So, I mean, in in a way that like just individuals on the left are mm-hmm. lucky that in their network they're not being fed as much propaganda as people on the right are being fed. Because if they were, they are equally prone to believing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there is a difference between the right wing network and the left wing network, and that has to do with institutions and norms. Now, if you look at like anyone who says, well, the, both the right and the left, uh, you know, they're both lying to you. Like, mm-hmm. this is this is just idiocy. The idea that the journalistic standards mm-hmm. at the New York Times are the same as they are over at uh, Newsmax is just fucking nuts. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, on every every article that's written at the New York Times or at NPR there are two fact checkers that work on that article. Now, that does not happen over on the majority of the right-wing news networks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it does seem like that is, yeah, no, I think that is an important issue. And I think, you know, we can still complain, you know, we could be critical still of the New York Times for its attempts to bullsiderism things. They, you know, you can't, you can't fact check your way out of a false equivalency bias or something mm-hmm. like that necessarily. But there are still, I think you're right, substantial differences. And I, I do really, you know, I joked about the luck thing, but I think this is very important. I think other skeptic folks um, that I'm a fan of have talked as well about how, you know, you really have to recognize that the human mind is primed for, you know, taking in information from its social environment. And it's largely a matter of luck about the quality of the social environment that you as an individual end up in. You know, it seemed, I was reading one of your things and I think you you sort of pointed out, I get the impression that in this kind of environment, especially this highly polarized version of what we're talking about, you know, every expert it seems like is gonna get classified as either an in-group expert or an out-group expert. Yes. And that eventually that's going to eliminate any sort of shared expertise that the multiple communities um, can point to. Do you feel like, you know, every expert gets classified in that kind of way and that we're doomed to like having no more sort of neutral sources of empirical information? So again, I think we need to think about, we need to distinguish between analyzing this at the at the level of how groups act or converge on beliefs and how individuals um, acquire their beliefs. So 
at the at the level of groups, like we we all have the prestige bias. It doesn't matter like what side we're on, right, mm-hmm. or what group we belong to. And so, but you know, as Plato's I mean, since Plato's been telling us, like part of what makes us human is we we have the the ability to to pause for a moment and reflect on why we believe certain things. And so this is the, the level of the individual. The individual has the ability to hesitate and say, hold on a second, what are the criteria that would make someone, what are the objective criteria by which I could sort the legitimate experts from the illegitimate experts or the people um, who I'm, I have, uh, I'm warranted to trust or those that I'm not warranted to trust. Now, um, so the, at the level of the individual, we're not just like hopelessly caught up in whatever our environment feeds us. I'm going to, well, caveat. And I, w- mm-hmm. I want to talk about that more with you. Um, yeah. But at the level of like how groups work, yes, they are. Uh-huh. Well, so even at the individual level, I mean, it's interesting you describe it that way. I, I do think that individuals can through mindful practice or something like that pause a little bit in their immediate formation of opinions and create a little bit of space for a kind of reflective process to occur there but i do worry that it's still ultimately a matter of luck it seems whether in that reflective moment they are influenced by a sufficiently well produced you know conflicting piece of information that it actually shifts them off of their perspective versus not i feel like you know the odds of of that convergence of of um factors is very difficult to accomplish in a lot of situations and even where it does happen like i would say it seems like that person happened to luck into someone who you know pulled them out of their epistemic spiral at just the right moment yeah good um i'm gonna take us on a little detour and then we'll come back because okay. um, this is something I'm, I've been working on, this this very problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just kind of lay out my thoughts on the issue right now. So um, I kind of have a, like an addiction model of understanding people mm-hmm. who have fallen into fake news, mm-hmm. right? So when when you're first introduced, when you first try a drug very few people get addicted from the first attempt, right? What gets you addicted is if you you do it more and more and also your social network ch- starts to change. The people that you hang around with are more and more likely to do drugs and so you get reinforcement and and you move away from the people that are, mm-hmm. are doing, that were in your life that aren't doing the drugs. Now, how, how do you get an addict out of addiction, right? It takes a relationship with someone who cares about them deeply and is willing to be compassionate and is willing to be patient and to just just work with them um, over an extended period of time. And so this is, so I don't, as social beings, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think anybody, I think very few people can pull themselves out on their own. Mm-hmm. The only way to pull someone out is if they have a relationship with someone that, that they know cares about them 
and has their best interests at, at heart and is willing to be patient and compassionate with them. And then, and only then, can they be receptive to the arguments that um, bump up against um, many of the uh, postulates that they've accepted in their kind of distorted worldview. You know, I'm sympathetic in that I think that's probably true psychologically about human beings, but it's a real fucking bummer in the sense that it's not a scalable solution and it's very yeah. difficult for me to even feel super compelled to strongly encourage other people to spend a large period of their time trying to effectively deprogram people from the cult that has been grown for you know generation in our uh in our society like yeah. you know I'm, I'm curious what your what how you feel about this stuff if it you know, if your takes about it were rattled at all by watching the Capitol Hill riot, um, which seemed to me to be sort of this explosion of conspiracy theory energy in a way that we haven't seen recently. I'm, you know, do you do you feel like we need to be re you know, reassessing our models at all in light of what we're starting to, to see boil over on the right? Oh, that's great. Um so I share your pessimism and despair <laughs> because I'm, I, I think like, yeah, based on what I've read that you, you've done, you've, you've probably gone through many of the uh, experiences that I've had where you've, tr you've engaged with people to try to deprogram them and it's fucking exhausting. Mm -hmm. And if you have like, you've got your life on top of all this stuff, you know, you've got your students, you've got your teaching, you've got your research. And, and then you've got to deal with this person that you care about, but they're just, it's so time consuming, but also like what doesn't get talked about enough is just like the emotional toll mm -hmm. of dealing with someone that you care about that is just, they're just so recalcitrant. And, and, and at, at some point you're like, it's just, it's just so much easier to just like say, fuck it. I'm done. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I can't like, even if I convert this one person, like what have I really done? Um, and, and so, yeah, the, like the, the pessimist in me is like, yeah, this is not a scalable way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've had mixed success. Like I've, I've deconverted a couple friends, but I've also had a couple friends that are, have remained recalcitrant. Um, yeah, I just struggle because the scale of the problem, right? Like speaking conservatively at this point, right? If 70 million people voted for Trump, I think it's reasonable to say that 30 million of them, right? Being extremely conservative are deep enough into the sort of far right ecosphere that like they're effectively in a cult and it's a kind of yeah. epistemically isolated death cult that um, is deeply, deeply worrying. And, you know, how do you deprogram 30 million people? That's like, there's, there's no models that I know of for like anything more than like grabbing one person, trying to pull them out of a group. And if you have enough resources to focus on that one person, like maybe you're able to help them. Yeah. Here's, here's like in my hopeful moods, here's like a, a couple of things. So, so a little bit of good news. I think it was yesterday I read that after they suspended Trump's uh, social media accounts and his like close yeah. media allies on social media, was too actually, yeah, yeah, like was it like seventy three percent drop in fake news or something like that? 
Yeah, I which, the was, it was stunning. It's like everybody should feel bad about that reality. Um, yeah, so yeah. like you could be right. Like there could be a couple of really key, well poisoning bad actors, and if you yeah. manage to remove them and not have. But like the difficulty is in removing them, you reinforce the epistemic isolation of the people who see themselves as being silenced in that process. Right, right. Okay, good. So this is like one of the things that I I, I always say when I'm talking to people or when I write about this stuff, and maybe you agree, uh, we're not after the extremists. We're not going to, you're never going to deconvert a fundamentalist. And if you are, it's just like, it's too much, too many resources. What you want is to make sure people don't go back down the path of addiction, mm-hmm. right? And so you want to remove the chances of people interacting with that environment. And so, you know, I I was, I think like early on, like several years ago, I wrote a blog post about how what we need to do is like, this is before Facebook removed natural news and Alex Jones. Um, mm-hmm. I said, what, you know, what we need to do is yeah you just push them down the in the algorithm and also on google you put them in like page 10 right so it's not you're not like quote unquote like completely censoring them but you just make it you just make it really hard for the average person to come in contact with them because that's what we're worried about we we don't want those groups to have a critical mass there will always be outliers there will always be crazy people and the people who like really want to like just make it so people have to look for it, and I, I think yeah. I, yeah. I think that's the right thing. Now the other the other kind of positive thing is, um, you know, the research on explanatory depth, mm-hmm. right? So actually, let me, actually, let me that reminds me of something else. Two positive things. So mm-hmm. um, if you and this goes back to like people on the left just being being lucky, right? So if you ask somebody like a quote unquote liberal, you know, to explain the physics of global warming to you, mm-hmm. they, they can't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is true for just about anybody on any issue for which they are not an expert. Um, so people don't have strong reasons for the views that they hold, which means that we can overcome those those arguments fairly easily in turn if in um, through reasoning, right? Now the other little bit of good news, and I talk about this in my dissertation, is um, see if I can recall it all. But basically, there are these studies where they take a, like a politically hot issue, like something that mm-hmm. divides Republicans and Democrats. And they, they ask them, you know, whether it's true or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff about, you know, did, or like, did the economy expand under Obama or did it go down? Or did, did, did George Bush, you know, put more troops into Iraq or did he take more troops out or stuff like this? Mm-hmm. And what they found was, is that people, like all things being equal, people will just say, whatever aligns with making their political party look good. So they call this partisan cheerleading, right? So um, people just give, because when you, when you survey people, there's no, there's no incentive for them to reflect 
or say the truth or say that, or even say that, that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, what they did was then they did is, okay, we're going to, we're going to pay you. I can't remember what it was, but let's say it's 50 cents for every answer that you get right. We're going to give you 50 cents. And then for every answer that you say, you don't know the answer, we're going to give you, I can't remember it was 10 cents or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the difference between partisan answers on all these issues decreased by like 70%. Right. So for me, people. For, yeah, for me, what this tells me is that for a lot of people like that are kind of in the middle, they don't actually believe this stuff, right? They're just partisan cheerleading. Mm-hmm. It's cheap talk. Yeah. But when, you know, when the rubber hits meets the road, and there are actually incentives for for saying that whether you know or not, or whether or if, or for for saying what's true, then people actually do know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think just the, the incentives are such that people are the vast majority of people are just incentivized to partisan cheerleading, and also you know we add in the 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 part about explanatory shallowness, right? People don't really have strong reasons or arguments for the views that they hold. And so this means that if we can, if we can structure our social media environment um, differently, then we can pull, we can easily pull a lot of these people out. Now the hardcore people, they're not going to, they're, they're not going to leave because they're going to, they're going to, you know, go on parlor and we know if that's still around or gab or whatever, they're, they're going to seek this stuff out. But for the average person it just kind of like falls into it because they, they lean right. Um, we can we can get them back. I think at the level of population, we we can get them back through social media platform design and you know forms of uh, you know pushing people down in the algorithm and removing the bad actors. Yeah, I'm I'm I want to be optimistic. I'm still nervous. I think at least <laughs> I, I do my best to to give yeah, the optimistic view. You know, this is a problem that I think all of the people who I th- respect intellectually are stuck staring at the same problem. And it's this, this Gordian knot where any one attempt to improve on one thing, you know, like creating an incentive structure where like you're saying, there's some, there's some actual benefit to people saying they, what they know to be true rather than, than doing the cheerleading thing. It's very difficult. It seems to me, first of all, to, fu- to, to have any kind of mechanism in our society for creating, you know, an incentive structure comparable to the pennies and, you know, the 10 cents and the 25 cents that you're doing in that experiment. Right. So it's, it's hard again to come up with. Well, actually, actually it isn't. So actually I've right. actually employed, employed this method. I should, I should have mentioned this. So, um, so what I do now mm-hmm. when I have a friend who posts like some crazy, you know, vaccine bullshit or, you mm-hmm. know, you know, oh yeah, Trump's going to win with this one weird trick. Just wait till next Tuesday or whatever, right? He's still going to win. So what I do now is I bet them. I say, if you believe that, I will bet you $100 that this won't happen. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I've won won some money. And also those people now check themselves. This is the funniest thing to me because this is the same thing that I've been trying out in various situations as a as a corrective for cheap talk online which is if you if you are in a situation where you feel like you can make a bet with someone where they will actually follow through on it that the offer of a a bet in that kind of way can can seem to shift people's epistemic behavior to some extent at least it's interesting and 
Um, well, here's here's the other the other important thing that's going on, right? So there's no cost to posting fake news. But now, if any time someone posts fake news in your social network, it becomes costly to them, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, so now, now they have to put their their money where their mouth is. Well, now mm-hmm. they're going to think twice about posting something, right? Mm-hmm. So now you've decreased in in that network the amount of fake news. And if they keep on posting bullshit, you keep on making money. Right. Now the other the other thing that I do is like when when their their prediction turns out to false, turns out to be false, and this is really really, really important, is I say to them, what does this tell you about the reliability of your source? Mm-hmm. Because this is the, you know, at the level of group, right? People are deferring to someone else. And so what you need to do is you need to show them that relative to my sources, your sources are unreliable, right? The mistake that, that the mistake that the conspiracy theorists make when they say, oh yeah, you know, what about the New York Times? They got this story wrong or whatever. You say, well, look, reliability isn't an absolute quality. It's a relative quality. All human institutions will make mistakes. And so what you need to do is you need to defer to the one that's most reliable relative to the other ones. And guess what? My sources are more reliable relative to your source. And I've shown this to you and it's cost you money. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is, is get to people to start thinking about the relative reliability of the sources that they're listening to. And you make it, so it costs them money to, uh, to follow their own ones, the unreliable ones. It's still, it's still a much like the personal relationship. Cause I mean, again, having the bet system work relies on having a personal relationship to the person, right? I, if I try to bet, you know, a rando on Twitter with zero, you know, you know, yeah. uh, clout or zero, zero interaction factor or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Like there's no incentive, there's no actual impact on their behavior. If it's a friend on Facebook, that's a different conversation, but yeah. it's still, of course, one of these things that is not a lot of scalable model, right? You're still talking about human beings having to one-on-one tackle other human beings and try to convince them to act otherwise. So that, I mean, that's, that's just one concern we've already talked about. Yeah. I want to ask you, because we're running short on time here, there's another concern that you've mentioned that you sort of alluded to in my mind, at least, which is, you know, you, you point to folks like Alex Jones and you say we push them down the algorithm, we get them off Twitter and Facebook. And I think that is right. Um, the concern then appears to, I think, be what does that mean for individuals who serve as kind of on ramps to these ways of thinking, but don't trigger as being explicit about it? So, you know, the example that comes to mind for me, you may not even know who this is, but. Um, when I Google a lot of social justice, culture war related topics, I will get directed immediately top of the list to New Discourses, which is a, a website run by uh, James Lindsay, who is a conspiracy theorist, but who creates a bunch of information that doesn't always look like conspiracy theories mm. and presents an eco like an entryway to these kind of ecosystems. And I'm curious do you worry about that kind of on-ramping problem? Do you think there's a way to manage it with, you know, or is it going to involve sort of the creeping out of who is being removed from these environments? Or how do you, how do you see trying to isolate those more hard cases? Yeah, this is, this is a deep uh, political problem, right? Cause you know, as much as I'm concerned about fake news and conspiracism, and 
I'm also concerned about, you know, stifling, you know, legitimate free speech and differences mm-hmm. of views. Um, so there's always like this trade-off between, you know, if you have too much, if you block too many views, you risk um, not having access to the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't block enough, then you end up with too many false views in your media environment. Right. So I, yeah, I mean, I think people, reasonable people can disagree about where that sweet spot is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't have like a, a worked out view on like where we draw that line, but th- there's probably like um, a gray area mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to lean towards allowing people to allowing that gray area on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should, we should lean towards allowing dissonant views. Um, Cause I think it's too dangerous to lean the other way. Yeah, no, I understand. It is a very tricky balance and I don't think there is a clear way to, you know, figure out where to amputate the infected uh, flesh perfectly so that you, you don't risk any <laughs> future infection in this kind of way. You know, so I am sympathetic to that. Um, let me ask you, we're, we're almost out of time and I want to get you to the enlightening round, but I want one final question here was, I, you can feel free to demure here, but would you venture any predictions about how our epistemic crisis is going to play out uh, in the near future? I think you're going to see um, a hardening or what's, what, do you, what do you call it? Like a hardening of the core, like the mm. people who are really, really into it uh, these people are going to go like deep dive, mm-hmm. um, and we we will see. I've been saying this for several years actually that we're going to see um, acts of domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. That that's that's clear. We're going to see buildings exploding. Um, you know, possible centers. I suspect. Yeah, um, that that should be pretty obvious to anybody following this by now. Um, but I think that social media now fully recognizes the danger of what they, they've created. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're going to see more restrictive um, policies on social media mm-hmm. and people getting shut down, you know, if they start producing a bunch of bullshit. Um, so I think we're going to have, we're going to start to see a deconstruction of the propaganda network, but we're also going to see the people who remain in it are going to become more and more hardcore. And mm-hmm. they're just going to be completely, completely separated from reality. Yeah. I, I'm sympathetic to that too. I think that's, that seems like where we're headed and with our government model, rather than some sort of transformation into a more functional situation, it's going to stagnate and we're just not going to address, I think a lot of the underlying issues that are, sort of exacerbating this polarization yeah well that's great and i'm super voidy way to way to wrap us up just right there i appreciate that so let me get you over to the enlightening round enlightenment comes from within so for folks who are not familiar the enlightening round is a bonus round where i'm going to give you a list of things you are going to tell me are these things real or not real you don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real. All you get to say is real or not real. Do you do you oh, understand this, this, what you're doing? 
Oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, bring it. Okay, great. All right, great. <laughs> Let's start. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Hmm. Man. <laughs> You'd think it'd be an easy question, right? Yeah. There are no easy questions in the enlightening round. Oh, this is great. Um, I'm going to say no. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Oh, man. Now you're going to make me have a consistent view. Um, no, I'm going to make you re realize that you do not have a consistent view. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I can either answer it to make my view consistent, which is going to go against my intuitions for some of the particular questions. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, man. Do I aim to be consistent or to just give the answers? Okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to be inconsistent and I'm going to say yes on this one. Okay. Flop which totally is inconsistent with the previous question. Or it isn't. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Free will. Is free will real? Oh, boy. I'm going to just say yes. Okay. Are selves or persons real? Yes. Okay. Genders? Yes. Races? And I'm not allowed to qualify, am I? Nope. Not at all. Yes. Okay. Species? Yes. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Hmm. Wow, I haven't thought about that one. I'm going to go with yes. God or gods? No. Society? Yes. Money? Yes. Numbers? Oh, good one. Um, <laughs> I'm go with yes. Okay. Fictional characters? Yes. Okay. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Hmm. Well, does the hole have a bottom or not? It's just a hole in the ground. Um, yes. Okay. Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches. Yes. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Oh, man. I said rights. Oh. Um. Shoot. Oh, I'm going to say no. Oh, interesting. Beauty. Mm, yes. Love. Yes. Causality. Yes. And finally, time. Yes. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Um, I feel like 
once I slipped into my social constructionist mode, then I was more comfortable saying yes to everything. You just went broad with it and said everything is real. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. If it's if it's part of a social practice and it influences our behavior, um, then I think I'm I'm okay calling it calling it real. It is funny to me which individuals slip towards I'm just going to call nothing real versus I'm just going to call everything real versus I'm going to try to have some middle position and then be really sad about it. So that was that's amusing to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, if if you had asked me, you know, several years ago, I probably would have been on the nothing's real side. Mm-hmm. But I've been, I guess, I just finished a course teaching a course on social construction, and I, you know, in some of my coursework, I did some stuff on social construction, and um, it's a much more plausible position than I had thought. Mm-hmm. And so you've gone. I think if you. Yeah, I think I think if you accept social construction, then yeah, as long as it's it's a socially recognized practice or um, um, item or something, then I'm okay with saying yeah, then it's real. All right, fair enough. Well, Ami, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff? Yeah, people can follow my blog, uh, wrestling dash with dash philosophy dot com. Um, there I write about topics like we've been talking about today and at the intersection of um, science, fake news, and public policy. Great. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Ami. Thanks very much. appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patron, Innocuous Bean. And all the void thanks to our Archon and Archduke level patrons. Dude, fix the vote. Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. I want to be the tempeh in the Foucault and Camus sandwich. Chad T., Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman just barely outrunning being pecked to death by lame ducks, weird, creepy void eyes, and all the thanks to our continuing to be all-time greatest top patron who has upped his support even more, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very, very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, I cannot stress this enough. You are the void and the void is you. 